Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, award-winning journalist Silvana Paternostro speaks in intimate and vexing detail of Colombia, the land she grew up in as a member of the landed elite before moving to the United States in the late 70s. In the years she was away, the country of her privileged childhood became the world's biggest producer of cocaine and the site of the most violent, protracted, and misunderstood civil conflict in Latin America, one in which the U.S. plays a vital role. Colombia is also the land of celebrated novelist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, whose magical realism, Paternostro says, is perfectly suited to a country where the truth is so terrible and unspeakable that it needs to be told as if it were a fantasy. Recorded before a live audience at the Actors Gang as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Silvana Paternostro. Thank you all for being here. I'm here to talk to you about Colombia, the country of my birth, the country that has been at war for at least the last 40 years, a country that I left when I was 15, and the country where my family still lives. We all know of Colombia as the birthplace of Garcia Marquez. Well, I was born right there in the land of what literature critics like to call magical realism. But on the north coast of Colombia, where I was born, Sometimes things happen that can be as absurd as the events that unfold in his novels, in which bullets turn corners and women levitate. I grew up believing that if I swam in the ocean on Good Friday, I would turn into a fish. My nanny, a young woman from the countryside, said it with such belief that who was I to test the waters? Magical realism is perfectly suited to a country like Colombia, where the truth is often so terrible and unspeakable that it needs to be told as if it were a fantasy. In fact, much of what you read in his books is something that has happened or he has heard has happened. Marcus said that to write magical realism, one has to become a journalist in Colombia. Garcia Marquez, a journalist before he was a novelist, transcribes Colombia's daily life. Yet although these stories are the basis for beautiful literature, life in Colombia is not quite as beautiful. In the first sentence of Chronicle of a Death Foretold, Santiago Nazar is told his killers are looking for him. They had told everyone in the town that they were going to kill him. Well, something very similar happened to a distant member of my family. He lived in a town not very different from where the novel took place. Towns far away from laws and infrastructure. Towns that have been living with a rigid structure of landowners and day laborers now for 200 years. This distant relative, a man in his 60s, was a landowner. And like all the men who have farms in Colombia, he was a target of the left-wing rebels that are now known more for their kidnapping practices than for their revolutionary beliefs. The rebels announced that they were coming for him. Instead of going out like the protagonist of the Garcia Marquez novella, who donned his suit and went out in spite of his mother's protest, Don Mario, 
not his real name, hired four bodyguards and locked himself in his house. Every day, when the clock marked six, he shut the windows and turned the lights out. Don Mario missed his land so much that to remember it, he lay down on the patio of his house and put his nose to the ground. He did this every night for four years, smelling soil to be able to continue living. As someone who has not lived there since the age of 15, that story sounded to me pretty surreal. But it was told to me as the most natural thing in the world. It was reported in the local newspapers. Don Mario locked himself in his house for four years with his nose to the ground. And that was just the way it was. Just like when Kafka's narrator registers quite matter-of-factly that he has turned into an insect overnight. Or how Garcia Marquez writes that one of the bullets that killed Nassar turned a corner and went up the stairs. I grew up surrounded by a loving family that made up better stories than Disney, not Garcia Marquez, and better games than Mattel. My grandfather, a landowner, would call up to a creature known as Pretty Bird, Pajarito Lindo, Pajarito Lindo, we would call him when we went over to visit him. He would tell us to tell Pretty Bird what we wanted. I'd always ask for craft caramels. My sister always wanted sugar-coated almonds. And by the time we reached the patio, candy rained over our little heads. Years later, we found out that Pajarito Lindo was Alfredo de Guard, that he had brought from the farm and who slept in the back room of the house, armed with a machete next to the cook and the two other maids that helped around. In 1999, after a 20-year absence from Colombia, I went back to make sense of what was happening there. The idyllic place of Pretty Bird was disintegrating, and I wanted to know what was happening. Colombia had, in the years that I had been away, become the largest exporter of cocaine. It held the highest number of kidnappings and murders, and it had millions of displaced people, almost as many as Darfur has today. Colombia, I knew, was incredibly violent when I left and pretty much turned my back on it. I didn't go back for 20 years, really. But that violence had a name. When airplanes exploded in midair, everybody said it was Pablo Escobar and the drug cartels. But Pablo Escobar had been dead seven years. So what was happening? So I got an assignment letter. I would go and report on Colombia like I had done so many times before throughout Latin America. I went back to Colombia as a journalist, but not to talk to the actors of the conflict and write it as foreign news. I went as the kind of journalist that Garcia Marquez suggests. I went to move between the magic and the real. So I went and spent time with my family and friends, except I like to call my stories nonfiction magical realism. So tonight, in order to help you understand the feeling of living in Colombia, I am going to tell the stories that will, I hope, also clarify the situation that has been unraveling in front of our TV screens in the past few weeks. It's, it's very rare that Colombia's situation gets in the news, but it so happens that it's been on the news for, for the past week since the uh, Colombian government killed the number two member of the FARC in Ecuador. 
the attack was sanctioned by the OAS, by the Organization of American States, as a violation of international law, and Hugo Chavez sent troops to the border of Colombia. So because of that story, you might have heard of the FARC. That organization started out in 1964 to overthrow the government, and their aim was to bring social justice to Colombia, like most revolutionary movements. But lately, they have been in the business of drug trafficking and kidnapping. Right now, they have 700 hostages, some of whom have been kidnapped for as long as 10 years. These include soldiers, a presidential candidate, three Americans. You might even have heard the story of the child that was born while his mother was kidnapped. They were both recently released. The actor that was missing in in the last two weeks about the war in Colombia is the paramilitary army. They're called the Autodefensas Unidas de Colombia, and they're known as the AUC, which is its acronym. The paramilitary is as old as the FARC, and they've vowed to kill every FARC or FARC sympathizer alive. To do that, anything is allowed, from stoning to hacking. They clean entire towns from guerrillas by massacring. Their weapon of preference is the chainsaw. On top of that, both sides have taken over Pablo Escobar's business, so they are fueled by drug trafficking profits. And to complicate matters, there's a huge military aid package coming to the Colombian government from Washington. So you might be asking yourself, what does the story of Pretty Bird and the man who smells soils for four years have to do with the war? Arne talks about actors in war and what sides are we supposed to be on? Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Is Uribe the president and his U.S.-supported hardline military actions good or bad? Is the FARC a revolutionary group fighting in the name of the oppressed, or is it a terrorist organization? Are the paramilitary a legitimate self-defense army or a terrorist organization? But this is not that kind of talk. This is about my Colombian war, and it is about nonfiction magical realism. And I think that it will help you understand what is happening in Colombia. To start to talk about Colombia, I have to tell you all something. Colombia is spelled C-O-L-O-M-B-I-A. And I have to say I'm really impressed with Socolo because in all of the back and forth of our correspondent, they did not misspell it once. (laughs) I'm serious about this. The United States is so unaware of the complexities of Colombia that most everyone thinks it's spelled C-O-L-U-M-B-I-A, like the university. In fact, it was the misspelling of Colombia that made me realize that the U.S. government was hugely interested in Colombia. You're listening to journalist Silvana Paternostro. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. 
This Wednesday, March 26th, former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle visits Sokolo to discuss the politics of health care. And on this Thursday, March 27th, Sokolo examines the future of Broadway along the heart of downtown Los Angeles. Amid plans for the continued upscale direction for the thoroughfare, some wonder what that will mean for the jobs and services Broadway currently provides for blue-collar Angelinos. Jerry Sullivan, editor and publisher of Los Angeles Garment and Citizen, sits down with L.A. City Council member Jose Wiesar, Orpheum Theater and Jack Fashion Building's owner, Steve Needleman, Bus Riders Union lead organizer, Manuel Criollo, and CRA Deputy Chief of Operations, Don Spivak. Admission to these and all Sokolo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, SokoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We'll return to Silvana Paternostro in a moment. Stay tuned to Sokolo Radio. Next time on Day to Day. Patty Cake. Patty Cake. Katrina Brown's son wasn't acting like other two-year-olds. But no one was able to tell her exactly why. I didn't even know there were doctors that did that. Finally, she found someone who could. There's no doubt in my mind that he's on the autistic spectrum. To hear there are things that we can do to help. I can handle that so much better. Identifying autism. seeing our child, how he really is. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Marco Werman. Baseball has a huge following in parts of Asia and Latin America, and maybe someday Africa. Some major league players went to Ghana, where the only place to play ball is on a soccer field. We're surprised at the level of talent here. When you can make plays on dirt infields like this, give them a manicured field, and they'll be great. Pitching baseball to Africa, next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Every day on All Things Considered, we bring you novel ideas and remarkable stories. This is really a new development. Oh my God, I will never forget that. You can't teach that kind of stuff, you just have it. We can shock them a little too. Something new, something unexpected, maybe even unforgettable on All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. 89.3 KPCC reaches an audience of over half a million informed, active, and educated listeners. To learn how your organization or business can reach this audience, call Julie at 213-621-3592 or send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to journalist Silvana Paternostro. That was in 1999 at a liberal arts college in upstate New York. A friend who taught there had organized a one-day conference to discuss the newly formed military aid package. All day long, academics debated if Plan Colombia, that's the name of the uh, package. And remember, this is before 9-11 and the ensuing events in Afghanistan and Iraq. So there was a lot of buzz about Colombia. Would it be the next Vietnam, the next El Salvador, the next Balkan War? As someone who had been closely following U.S. foreign policy in Latin America for many years, 
This was quite a turn of events. I have always been surprised and confused as to why there is such little interest in news from Colombia. What happens in Colombia has always been of little interest. What happens in Colombia stays in Colombia. I know the Colombians like it this way. They are very sensitive about creating a mala imagen, a bad image abroad. So Colombians would prefer it if you don't know that they have the FARC that kidnaps and the AUC that massacres and that it has three million people displaced. They prefer to emphasize the good stuff. Emeralds as heavy as apples. The richest coffee in the world, as Juan Valdez taught us. So many types of orchids and birds. Still... Americans like to know where their tax dollars are going, and I wonder if Colombia's situation here gets such little attention because there is not a large Colombian community in this country swaying the vote, like the Cuban-Americans in Florida or the Mexican-Americans here in California. Anyway, back to that college conference where Colombia was discussed for one day. I don't really remember much of the academic discussion, but what I do remember is a poster held by a young student that was like the posters I had seen in my college campus in the late 70s. In my college days, they read, U.S. hands out of El Salvador. This one read, U.S. hands out of Colombia. But guess what? Colombia was spelled with a U. <laughs> Great, I thought. The country is getting $1.3 billion of military aid. The college students are marching with posters but they had gotten the spelling wrong. There seemed to be something appropriate about the misspelling. It is a war as complicated as it is to get the spelling right of a difficult name. Tonight, I am here as a journalist who went to Colombia to move between the magical and the real, and sometimes actually the awful. I went back and lived again with parents and grandparents and siblings and friends and relatives who lived there, with the emeralds and the coffee and the best carnivals after Rio and with the kidnaps and with the killings. A war that everyone dates as 40 years old, but really started 200 years ago. Colombia's war started with the creation of Colombia to when it went from being the Viceroyalty of the Nueva Granada to becoming La República de Colombia, named after Cristóbal Colón. That would be Christopher Columbus. And because Colón is spelled with two O's, Colombia is spelled with two O's. So a little history is important to understand the situation today. Colombia was the seat of power of the Viceroyalty of the Nueva Granada, a colony of the Spanish crown. Simón Bolívar, an educated and well-traveled criollo, didn't like the rules of the Spanish crown, and he led an army against them and won independence for the colony in 1820. The Viceroyalty became the Republic of Nueva Granada, but shortly thereafter it became the Republic of Colombia. If most criollos, which was the name given to the men of Spanish parents who were born in the colonies, were in agreement to fight against the Spanish crown, they disagreed on how to build a republic. There were two major schools of thought, los liberales and the conservadores, the liberals and the conservatives. The conservatives wanted to follow the rules of the Spanish crown and have a government ruled by the church and by some men with land. The liberals, influenced by the French Enlightenment, 
lived in secularism and in laissez-faire commerce. Between the start of the Republic in 1832 and the turn of the century, Colombia managed to have 32 wars between the liberals and the conservatives, bloody wars. Remember the 32 wars of 100 years of solitude. Those are them, the ones that Coronel Aureliano Buendía fought for the liberals. They weren't met up. They are historia patria, as Colombians call their history. And in fact, my great-great-great-grandfather, the son of a French colonizer, fought on the side of the conservatives, which was actually the side of the government. He was a descendant of el francés que llegó. That's how my grandmother would always answer the question of, how did we get here? The Frenchmen who arrived, that's how we refer to their European roots, what gives my family an upper hand in a world that believes in class structure, I found out after doing a little research, was a 25-year-old who arrived to Colombia in 1848 from Bordeaux, bought some land, married a woman with some more land, and stayed. When it was time to fight the war, the Frenchman's son, as the son of a landowner, was naturally on the side of the conservative government. This war is known as La Guerra de los Mil Días, which sounds much more poetic, the war of the 1,000 days, than a war that lasted three years. The liberals and conservatives paraded the streets in their respective colors. Liberals used red towels on their waists. The conservatives, who were prissier, wore blue handkerchiefs. Under their party colors, however, however they both carried knives and machetes. The conservatives won in 1902, but neither side disarmed. The battles between the liberals and the conservatives, as they were part of García Márquez's novels, are part of my family lore. And the town where the conservative general lived is as storied as the town of Macondo. The general in the family was such a good conservative that his house was painted blue, the color of the conservative party. He lived across the street from the church with the three spires. He had the Monsignor to lunch once a week, and he organized the processions of the Virgen from his house. But the conservative and very Catholic general, I also learned, had a great many children out of wedlock. When I asked how many, the family historian told me that there are more than there are letters in the alphabet. His eulogy read that he contributed greatly to the progress of the town, even if his propensity for violence was misunderstood. But nobody can tell me what this means. My grandfather was born in the Frenchman's house, and he married my grandmother, another descendant of the Frenchman, in the church across the street. Conservatives married conservatives, and good conservative families married good conservative families. The same happened with liberals. I remember reading about a town that had both liberals and conservatives, but only one church. So the priest decided to build two different entrances. One door painted red for the liberals, the other painted blue for the conservatives. I remember the quote from the priest saying that he would see the killers from both sides at mass on the same day. If this was how Colombia came into the 20th century, it is not very different how it would enter into the 21st. If the fight in 1898 was between liberals and conservatives, the one in 2001, they say, is between the rebels and the paramilitary. 
But the parallels to me are very obvious. The month I arrived, the papers reported one kidnapping every three hours in the countryside. But in my hometown of Barranquilla, where I grew up, going to the American high school, actually pledging allegiance to the American flag every day, and thinking I was so good at English, and I knew all the lyrics to the American pop songs, that I don't know if you guys remember, Do the Hustle. Maybe I'm dating myself. But me and my friend were sure it was saying, chew the hot dog. (laughs) Chew the hot dog. So I went back to see all my friends and to see how it was like to live in this situation. But everyone looked at me funny when, when I asked. It's, it's not funny. Everyone was really getting ready for carnivals. There was no violence in Barranquilla, nor was there violence in sophisticated Bogota with its new facelift of modern city, public spaces, and gourmet restaurants, and all its weekly magazines. The month I, re- I arrived to report, I decided to visit the family farm and the storied places that the Frenchmen had colonized, and I was told, no way. The roads were off limits, specifically for people who owned farms or had certain last names such as mine. If I went, my family explained, I ran the risk of being stopped at a rebel checkpoint and taken, the word everyone uses for being kidnapped. When I ask my friend how they can live there, they laugh at me and quote a recent study that named Colombians as the happiest people in the world. In fact, during the week that more than 70 people were kidnapped, not in Barranquilla, not in Bogota, in the countryside, the main weekly had run a cover story on a study done by a scientist in England. The cover of the magazine was Big Daisy, sort of dyed in the colors of the Colombian flag, amarillo, azul y rojo, yellow, red, and blue. And the title read, Happy Colombia. This is Happy Colombia, the best place to live, my friends tell me, even if they need armored cars and bodyguards to move around. To me, it all had the quality of magical realism, but to the New Yorker and me, it also amounted to a big dose of denial. A country with one of the highest rates of violence prefers to call itself Colombia Feliz. The country had the highest rate of kidnapping, and I was hearing from those who were labeled as targets of kidnapping that Colombia was the best place in the world to live. The FARC kidnap in the name of what they call La Nueva Colombia which is the future country that they hope will come into being as a result of the revolutionary efforts. It's clear that some kind of revolution needs to occur in Colombia. 96% of the arable land is in the hands of 3% of the population. Corruption and murder run rampant, and 99% of all crimes go unpunished. Or a paramilitary organization that opposes the FARC infiltrated 30% of the country's Congress. But despite their aspirations, Colombia in general, and, and not just the landed, don't support the FARC. They are perhaps, I think, the most unpopular revolutionary movement in the world. Just last month, millions of Colombians 
all around the world went out in protest. In 2001, when I got there, the kidnappings were called retentions. Every citizen, the FARC believed, especially the oligarchs and the landowners, this is what they say, needed to pay the tax that would create the Nueva Colombia. And they argued that their retentions had increased because of Plan Colombia. They had it to raise as much money as the government was receiving from Washington. So they passed Law 002 that dictated that every Colombian worth $1 million would be retained until they paid the tax they owed the rebels. So when I arrived in Colombia, one kidnapping was occurring every three hours. The FARC were formed in 1964 after the Cuban Revolution, but the roots go back before the island victory. Like all revolutionary movements in Latin America, and there were many in the 60s and 70s, they received education in the Soviet Union, and they were trained in Cuba. But the FARC leader, Comandante Tirofijo, which means sure shot, began his fight against the Colombian government long before that. Actually, the origin of his rebel group can be traced back to that fight between the liberals and the conservatives that I told you about, called the 1,000-Day War. Between the end of the war in 1903 and the beginning of the FARC, there was another war, one that doesn't have such a poetic name, although it also lasted more than 1,000 days. This one is simply called La Violencia. Between the late 1940s and the early 50s, the conservatives and the liberals were at it again. This time, the horror increased, and this time, each side had a paramilitary branch. The conservatives' killing arm was called the Chulavitas, named after a black bird. Groups of men wearing black clothes would arrive into liberal towns. The next day, corpses of liberals would be found floating down the river. The liberals had armies, too, and their leaders were called Black Blood and Vengeance. The issues were quite similar. The conservatives linked to the landowners wanted to get rid of the free-thinking liberals who were telling the day laborers and the workers about benefits and about land ownership. The liberal rebel army was accusing the conservatives of killing the peasants to rid them of their land and expand their holdings. Is every finca in Colombia a product of this practice? If you believe the FARC, it is. And that is the reason why every landowning person in Colombia has been labeled a military object by the FARC. One of the peasants on the liberal side was a man named Pedro Antonio Marin, and he commanded what were called the Repúblicas Independientes in the south of Colombia. The war ended with a pact to disarm in the late 50s, but many, including Marin, did not. In 1964, the conservative government sent the army in. It is said, actually, that napalm was used as a test for the U.S. to later use in Vietnam during that attack. Marine's camp was destroyed, and he took on the name of Manuel Marulanda in honor of a slain union leader and vowed to fight the Colombian oligarchs, conservative landowners, and their army till the end. He called it the Fuerzas Revolucionarias Armadas de Colombia, the FARC of today. And he has been leading it since then. Manuel Marulanda is almost 80 years old. He must be the oldest guerrilla in history. He has been fighting against the Colombian government for 44 years, 
living in the jungle with a gun at his bedside. In Colombia, they are incredibly unpopular. But my uncle, a descendant of El Francés que llegó, told me that in the 70s and 80s, they were actually quite welcomed in the regions where they arrived. You're listening to journalist Silvana Paternostro. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Silvana Paternostro in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. United States, we think of slavery as something well in the past, but around the world, human trafficking continues to be a serious concern. And on the next edition of Air Talk, guest host David Lazarus will lead a conversation with author Benjamin Skinner. Skinner's new book is A Crime So Monstrous Face to Face with Modern Day Slavery. It's Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. KPCC brings you in-depth news without commercials. You make that possible when taking the step from KPCC listener to KPCC contributing member. Take that step today at kpcc.org. And thanks. Think elections. Think depth. Think context. Think for yourself. Election coverage on 89.3 KPCC and at kpcc.org. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand, coming up practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to journalist Silvana Paternostro. The FARC. They would serve as a police force in these provinces that the state never cared for. My uncle tells me that they would punish the petty thieves, the, the guy who stole the chickens, and even the cattle rustlers. He tells me that when at first they asked for medicines or food, he would send them both but that slowly their requests became impositions and eventually came with threats at the barrel of a gun. He had to scurry away to the city and manage the farm via cell phone and videotape. He stopped going to the farm. There were others who stayed in the fincas and fought back. One in particular, Ramon Isasa, who has been labeled as the father of paramilitarism, 
killed 20 rebels in 1978. A peasant came to tell me that 20 rebels were coming for me, he told a reporter recently. So he grabbed his eight rifles and gathered eight of his workers, and when the rebels arrived, they just ambushed them. We were born here, and here we will die, he said, as if it was the only way he could have lived. By the year 2000, the paramilitary had become a household name. The AUC were as known as the FARC. Both had websites. The FARC's was called NuevaColombia.com, and the Paris was called ColombiaLibre.com. Soon, I was hearing that there were parts of Colombia where landowners could return to their farms. There were zones where people could even go back and sleep in their farms. I heard it was thanks to a man who went by the name of Carlos Castaño, who took up arms after his father was killed by the FARC. In a few years, his organization would become the AUC. Like Marulanda vowed to fight the Colombian government till death, Castaño promised to avenge his father's death and rid Colombia of every guerrilla or guerrilla sympathizer alive. From Castaño's perspective, that could mean giving a cigarette to a rebel, selling them food if they come to your store. Castaño first came into the public awareness because in August of 2000, he gave an interview to a reporter in Colombia who was helicoptered in for the exclusive. He said in national television, I'm going to quote him, Yes, I am an extortionist. It's very similar to what the guerrilla does, but I do it more tenderly, with more affection, because they are my friends, they can bargain with me. To some, I even give them IOUs. With some, our friendly dice help, but they all have to pay something. That we use drastic measures is true, but Colombians must understand that when you have to exercise authority, it is too difficult to limit yourself to moral norms. If the army did what they did, they would all be in jail. This produces excellent results because we can attack our enemy using their same methods. It is inevitable that in an irregular war, human rights get violated. After the interview, Colombia thought that they had found the savior of Colombia. In a court of law, his crimes would get him 600 years in prison. But Colombians wanted him for president. He wrote a biography after that, explaining more about his methods. It went on the bestseller list. It didn't matter what he did as long as he was ridding Colombia of the guerrillas. By 2002, his organization controlled 35% of the Congress. For better or for worse, the existence of the paramilitary, they said, was a necessary evil. I heard all kinds of explanations and validations. Someone once told me, even the Swedish would like them if they had to live with the FARC. Like the rebels, the Paris became the lawmakers and the police force. In some areas, they forbid men to wear long hair or pierce their ears. In others, they punished a man who was thought to be abusing his wife. They established their own curfews. While Castaño was never elusive about what his group stood for and the need to do whatever it takes to get results, the extent of their atrocities is only now being brought in the open. As of last year, mass graves have been found. About a month ago, I read a report in the newspaper about the discovery of a training school 
that taught people the physical and emotional skills needed to kill, to dismember, and to bury alive. Colombia has a dirty war that is still in the process of becoming uncovered. But the people who died were a statistic when I was there. I traveled a few times between 1999 and 2005. No one seemed to notice the dead, just like no one seemed to notice that in Bogota, the number of street vendors and beggars increased by the minute. I saw a mother selling garbage bags with a sign that read, I am a displaced mother of the country's violence. I have to sell these bags to survive. Please cooperate. Seeing that woman reminded me of a man I had run into on my first week in Barranquilla. Going from my grandmother's to my uncle's house, feeling the breeze that felt like it did when I was a teenager walking those same streets. I saw the yellow flowers of the tree called Golden Rain fall to the ground and three aproned young women walking poodles. War changes everything, I said to myself, and war changes nothing. Not the flowers, not the sidewalks, not even the breed of dogs. I keep walking the dark streets when I feel a body bump into mine. I'm sorry, I say. A man materializes in front of me carrying an iron pipe. He speaks directly to my face. I am looking for work, he tells me. Please, I'll do anything. I'll cut grass. I'll paint. Anything. I told him that I wish I could, but that I did not live here. As I told him, a plane flew over us. His eyes grew wider. Lucky you, Donita, lucky you. You're going on one of those, he called them, pechos de plata, tin breasts. Lucky you, no one should have to live like this. Escape, escape this violence. I asked him where he was from. From his accent, I could tell he was not from the coast. He told me he had arrived a few months ago. Escaping violence, he said. He explained to me that his father and his two sisters were killed in front of him. And to save his wife and his three children, he had taken them and had walked for days until they reached the outskirts of Barranquilla, where they had heard a good priest had set up tents for the hundreds of families like his. I was starting to understand the statistics about the millions of internally displaced people that I read in the UN reports, and only in the UN reports. I mean, how many stories about the millions of displaced people in Colombia do we read in the papers today? Seems like we need a movie star to get the victims of wars and refugees noticed. So if you know any, tell them. Colombia has millions of internally displaced people. Thank you. Now it's time for questions from the Socolo audience for journalist Silvana Paternostro. Hi, Ingrid Mejia. I'm half Colombian. I would like to know a little of the history of Uribe because my understanding is Uribe became famous because he took arms against the guerrillas as well, and that's where his popularity began. Could you explain a little bit about this? Because I don't know if it's yes. true. Yes, or... let me see how I can explain this. In 1999, there was an election. Andres Pastrana was elected. This was the same time that Plan Colombia was put into effect. And President Pastrana 
decided to have peace talks with the FARC. And he actually demilitarized a zone in the south of Colombia as big as Switzerland. And during these four years, the government and the FARC sat down to try to come into a ceasefire, actually the same time of period where I went back to do this reporting to write this book. Uh, this is the same time that the kidnapping rates were increasing and that the government was training their army. During his term, his popularity went from very, very high to very, very low because he kept insisting on dealing with the rebels through peace talks, although there were always breaks in the truce. So by the end of Pastrana's presidency, when the next election came, Uribe's platform was no peace, war to the rebels. And according to the reports, he was elected because he promised to never talk to the rebels and to just wage war against them. His motto was, corazón grande, mano firme, big heart, iron fist. And that's pretty much what he's done. And he actually was reelected. So he is a president that believes in waging war. I'm Jay Eady. Up until a few years ago, all we heard of Colombia was the drug cartels and all the killings from that. In recent years, we don't hear much at all. Is this possibly because Plan Colombia has been effective, or is it just change? It's changed. Colombia is still the producer of 90% of cocaine in the world. The way it is handled is just different. Before you, you knew the names of Pablo Escobar and the drug cartels. Today, for example, we know that both the paramilitary and the FARC are involved in drug trafficking. So it's quite alive, the drug trade in Colombia. Hi, my name is Javier. The news last week pretty much brought up the subject to, to the public. And um, the allegiance between the FARC and neighboring countries became sort of clear. Has this been ongoing, the relationship between the FARC and Venezuela, maybe neighboring countries? And uh, that's one question. And a second question is, do you feel nostalgic to a lifestyle that your forebears used to have, where you have this pajarito lindo sort of environment in the hacienda, I assume? Do you feel nostalgic? Um, no. I think I use those stories to illuminate the inequalities that exist in the country. I can tell them from one side. They sound fun and pretty, but I think that the reason why I'm telling them is to illuminate that Colombia is n not the modern country, that it's still straddling between a very feudalistic mindset, and that actually this war and these actors of this war have that mentality still very alive that the fact that the rule of the rifle over the rule of the law is still kind of tied in to Pajarito Lindo. And to go to your first question, I remember being in Ecuador about three years ago. And 
you know, I don't know if you've traveled in the areas, but these borders are so porous that, you know, you walk for 10 minutes and you're on the other side. But I remember hearing from a journalist that had just been right where this camp was found. He said, you walk in this little town and all of a sudden there are 10 new drugstores, 10 new hardware stores, 10 new shops that sell rubber boots, 10 new clinics. Obviously, these are the types of commerce that rebels in Paris need when they're hiding in the jungle. These are medicines and rubber boots and batteries for the radios. And in this little town on the other side of Ecuador, you know, on the other side of Colombia and Ecuador, they were selling it to them. So it didn't come as a surprise to me when I saw in the news that the camp was on Ecuadorian land. I think that's been where they've been living for years. Hi, Silvana. I'm David. Do you have an opinion on whether or not legalizing drugs in the United States would help Colombia's situation? Yes. (laughs) I know it's a very complicated issue, and I know that there's a difference between legalization and decriminalization, but I know one thing. The war on drugs fought militarily doesn't work. I also know that if something that grows in Colombia makes that much money, there's going to be people involved in the business as long as it is that profitable. And so the simple answer is yes, I think that. I think that it will reduce some of the violence. However, I don't think that the problems of Colombia will be solved if drugs were legalized. Because part of the problem in Colombia is still that it's a feudalistic mentality, that it is a mentality of, you know, masters and servants, and it's a mentality of paternalism that can take all different kinds of roots. And there's all kinds of lords. Basically, Colombia is a country of lords. There's drug lords, warlords, landlords good lords, bad, you know, and that has existed because that was kind of the way that it started. And I think this is one of the reasons why I tell these stories and why I wrote my book is that it's not just the FARC, it's not just the paramilitary, it's not just the drugs, it's the mentality that allows for that to happen. You've been listening to the Colombian-born, award-winning journalist, Silvana Paternostro. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenshole. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs>